Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I love the kind of hushed, reverent sound that you've all produced instead of the normal chatter, positively a Wagnerian hushed waiting. Um, welcome to the Coliseum. I'm Christopher Cook and I'll be looking after this afternoon's pre-performance talk. Uh, house notices first. Could you make certain that you've turned off all your telephones completely so they don't dance, whistle or sing or any other device that might do that? <clears throat> Can I remind you that you shouldn't take pictures um, at all and that uh, recording is not for you but for us and indeed should you wish to hear what we're going to talk about again at leisure it will eventually, the whole of today's PPT, it will be on the Eno website and you can hear it again. Um, emergency exits here and at the back, uh, if anything untoward, which it won't happen, make your way quietly and we'll be taken out of the house by the Coliseum staff. Um, if you'd been introduced to Richard Wagner in the 1850s, you would, I think, have thought him a complete failure and a big talker, but not with much to show for it yet, um, even though his claims were even then that he was going to change music forever. He'd been exiled from Germany for his part in the Dresden Uprising of 1849, and he and his wife, Minna, uh, unhappily to some extent, already were living in Switzerland. They were mostly dependent on handouts from friends and supporters, including an extremely wealthy silk merchant called Otto von Wesendonck. Wagner, of course, not only borrowed money from Otto, but it seems he also borrowed his wife, Matilda. Uh, though we can't be quite certain how far that went. Was it simply heavy sighs on the sofa in the salon, or did they creep upstairs as well? We simply don't know. Wagner was writing <clears throat> music for an audacious and completely original work. Four linked music dramas that would tell the history of the world literally from the beginning to the end, the ring of the Nibelung. But where on earth in the world was the theatre and where the resources to actually stage such a hugely ambitious work? What Wagner needed was money, and he was going to make money by writing in 1854 a modest opera that could be staged just about anywhere in existing opera houses in Europe. There will be just six principal characters, a pair of lovers, Tristan and Isolde, the cuckolded King Mark and the villainous Mellet, and two confidants for the lovers, Corvenal and Brangena, and a modest chorus. But this, of course, is Richard Wagner. And the modest little moneymaker he imagined just simply grew and grew and grew to become one of the seminal works in the Western musical tradition. What had been, I suppose, a kind of story about the composer's relationship with the Weisendonks and his own wife, Minna, became in time a philosophical investigation into the very meaning of romantic love and, above all, into the personal and social consequences of romantic love. And Wagner's music, too, was changing, as you can hear from the very beginning of the opera. The opening bars of the prelude tell you you have entered an entirely different world musically than you've ever been to before. As Wagner himself wrote to Matilda Weisendonck after the storm of their relationship had passed and they were endeavouring to be friends, this Tristan is becoming something terrible. The last act. I fear the opera will be forbidden unless the whole thing is turned into a parody by bad production. Nothing but indifferent performances can save me. Completely good ones are bound to send people mad. Well, I promise you, not a parody in sight here at English National Opera, and certainly not an indifferent performance ahead of us this afternoon. And we have a quartet of guests with us to explore this new production of Tristan and Isolde. Edward Gardner, a former music director for English National Opera, who conducts tonight's performance, will be with us in a while. We're going to be joined by the soprano Janice Watson, who's covering the role of Isolde today, and Richard Pearson, a member of English National Opera's music staff. And they're going to perform at the end of this afternoon music from the opera. But our first guest is 
Tonight is Daniel Kramer, recently appointed Artistic Director of English National Opera and the director of this new production of Tristan and Isolde. Will you please welcome Daniel Kramer. Daniel, a very simple first question. As a director, do you approach Tristan and Isolde, if you're invited to direct, with some trepidation? No. Just absolute passion. One waits their whole life to start to work on the Wagners in the opera world. There's quite a queue. Normally the senior directors get the Wagners and we youngins wait till we're 50, basically. So when I walked in the building and it, they just said, do you want to do it? I said, yes. And then one spends 24 months of ecstasy getting to listen to it every single day. What, what could be worse? <laughs> but as you began those 24 months, began to think about it, what kind of things emerged for you about Tristan, your own thoughts about it? Um, I always begin by listening to the abstract sound of the opera for about six months before I go reading um, the actual libretto word by word. I like to just, um, it's something that Peter Brook taught me to do. Um, just listen to the abstract sound and see what you see, what do you hear, what thoughts come to mind. Um, Peter Brook said to me when I was young, who could sing this? What culture could sing this? What world could sing this? And I love that question because it so engages the imagination to only respond to the abstract sound. For, unfortunately, I'm not fluent in German yet. So it, it's, a, it's an added bonus because I did listen to it in the original language for a long time because I think that the syllables hold a lot of meaning. Um, so that's the beginning. And then you start to read the story uh, beat by beat. And that's when I start a very intellectual Stanislavski and modern process of asking what the story really is. And I, I always ask the question, I think it's a signature of English national opera, where and how could this story resonate in the modern world? Um, I'm very interested in a director of seeing stories that are timeless. I, as a director, am very unattracted to the idea of period. It seems very limiting to me. I'm very interested in everything on stage being a symbol and a metaphor that is felt. And uh, I know we've got plenty of ice, don't worry. Um, I'm very interested in symbols um, like music and like dance. Um, I believe that some of Wagner is sometimes ripped apart when academics come in and try to assign meaning to everything. And I love academia, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't go far in life without my dramaturges. But I believe fundamentally Wagner and every great composer and every great artist asks us to come in the room and feel and so when I'm assembling a world of set design, a world of costumes, a world of props, I'm always asking what the audience is going to feel. And one of the things that I've noted since 2000, and I really believe this began in the 80s with Steven Spielberg, and I say this very seriously, I think that there's been something so prescriptive and saccharine-fed from a lot of contemporary film that we are expected to come and be told what to feel versus what, of course, this opera offers above all else is for us to come and explore the mystery of our own feelings and our own responses. I did a, a production of Hair once, and um, a reviewer said, his war scenes are vile and disgusting. And I thought, how do you want your war scenes to be served to you? <laughs> and I'm always, and I say this really genuinely, because I think we have a unique opportunity at English National Opera right now to take um, the art form so far forward with the incredible cuts we have. It, you know, poverty is the, um, the, the mother of necessity and invention. 
And I always challenge audiences to remember, if you don't like something, does that mean that it's poorly done? Or that something in you was responding against it? And I have to be the same way as an artist often when I go and see my contemporaries' works with knives in my pocket. Um, and remind myself that sometimes something I don't like, it doesn't mean it's bad, it actually begs of me to think about it. And always ask the question, why? Why? What are they trying to say? There's a woman, oh, you didn't see it, there was an image of the very end of the show, the Liebestod, with Isolde holding Tristan, and she's got this white across her face. And at a, at a Q and a or at a, a feedback session after opening night, this one woman, who's one of our most supportive patrons, came up to me and said, why does she have white makeup on her face? Is she a ghost or something? I didn't like that, I didn't understand it. And I said, well, that's an amazing question. Why did she have white makeup on her face? What if she's a ghost? And she went, oh my God, if she's a ghost, then did she ever come back? Or was it all a dream? And I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Follow that thought. Um, so yeah, well, in, in, yeah. in, in, in the early, in act one, perhaps added in act two, there's a sense in which your Tristan and your Isolde are caught up in a kind of um, terrifying narcissism. Um, and you do question whether they're actually in love with each other or really in love with themselves or out of love with each other. Was that, was that always a, a thought in your mind? Yeah, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a part of the legacy of the opera, of um, are they actually in love or are they um, completely narcissistic? I think that I'm very interested in Tristan and Isolde being caught up in a world uh, where they don't have free will. And then the potion, of course, Schopenhauer gives them will. And I was very interested in them being trapped in a, in a world of servants and makeup and livery and costumes and wedding dresses and dressing like a knight to the end of Act 1 where they go, forget all of this. We want to be together. We want to be free. And then in Act 2, what, for me, the most interesting thing about Act 2, sorry, it's hard to look at you and talk. Forgive no, me. But I'm trying, I'm trying to give it to you. <laughs> uh, in Act 2 in particular what of that love is real and what is an illusion? That's the most interesting question to me. And I, I don't want to give away sensationalist modern references that influence me because it'll tamper with what you see today on your own, which is more important to me than anything I could possibly say is your own response. But I'm very interested in the idea of Anish and I tried to create all of Act Two as an illusion. And there's a distinct moment, the climax of Act Two, when the lovers are ripped out of this, let's just say, garden of their love. Well, you've seen it in a way and another reality comes crashing in. And that's been, for me, the, the best feedback from the show. People going, oh, what was going on there? That's, that's so harsh, that's such a, such a change of language. And we said, it's exactly what it is. There's an ambiguity at the end in this production. There's inevitably a sense of confusion and loss at the death of Tristan and Isolde. But there's also a kind of sneaking feeling that something profoundly disruptive has now been banished that the kind of disruptions that romantic love have caused within, if you like, the social world are now over. Uh, again, these two things have to be balanced, presumably, all the way through as you think about this piece, the needs of social order and the uh, attempts to challenge them. Well, I mean, it's beautifully said, first and foremost. Um, I, look at the, I look at Act Three as being 900 years later. And now you won't see that today. You can take it as one week later. But I look at it as the trauma at the end of Act Two has aged them kind of profoundly. And the, the final movement, once Isolde arrives and she dies, um, there's this kind of nightmare that Kervenal wrestles with. 
Um, and by many opera directors, it's considered the nightmare scene of the opera. You kind of have this incredible death scene of Isolde and then this really, quote unquote, annoying five minutes of everyone else coming in to die. And you get most directors saying, can't we just cut that? And then she sings the Liebestode. So right away, my challenge was, wait, I have to love this scene more than anything. This is, this is a piece of, this is a gift. What is this? And it, it's become a feature of, for me, it's like, at the very end, it's the winds of time, which they, we will all succumb to death. No surprise to anyone in this room. And that became the, preve the prevalent theme to me, is that at the end of the day, all of these attachments in the Buddhist sense, all of these attachments, all of this behavior, all of their struggle, all of, all of our struggle, led by King Mark, will be washed away. And we, I believe, I think you're referring to, we, we chose, Anish agreed to take the job with me. He said on meeting one, what will you do at the end of the opera? Because most modern productions, like the one that's about to go to the Met, which Stuart is singing in, Isolde shoots herself at the very end, and I just, I won't go there. People will, you know, call me an anti-purist or a radicalist or whatever, and actually, I believe firmly, I always direct the, hello, the spirit of the music. And at the ending, it was so important to Anish and I that Tristan and Isolde do transfigure, and that they are united which is almost considered old-fashioned and romantic now. And I got some very strong rolled eyes this weekend in Germany that I, that I let them live, and that, or that I show them with joy. And I, I just believe that's what Wagner is saying musically. You, you, at least my sense of in this production is that you give Melot a much uh, higher profile, a much greater presence than sometimes he has. In a sense, therefore, the, the challenge to Tristan, the, the otherness to Tristan, um, uh, this notion of perverted duty, perhaps, as we now read it, is there on stage with Tristan all the way through. Were you, were you consciously thinking about who is Mellet? How should he be playing all the way through the piece? For Act Two in particular, or the end of Act One and the end of Act Two. Yeah, I mean, it's a thankless role. I mean, it's a thankless role. And I think that the, the equilibrium, the balance of those two um, knights on the side of King Mark's hands are really important. And it related to me to the strengthening of King Mark's character, uh, who I think is an unbelievably good king and has an incredible, I, I believe in act two when King Mark is confronted with their love affair. Uh, one of my favorite moments is the king stops everyone from separating them. And I believe the king is essentially saying, this exists in our kingdom. We can't just deny this, we can't just damn this, we can't just hate this, this actually exists. This, call it cancer, call it love, call it poison, call it magic. It exists and we have to incorporate this. And Melot is part of that balance. Um, yeah. The design is by the great sculptor Anish Kapoor. Um, how did it evolve, or did Anish Kapoor have ideas and you worked with them? And what was the kind of relationship between him and the very large sculptural forms he creates? Mm. Um, from the moment I was offered the show, I was asked if I would do a deconstructive psychological setting in a laundromat version which is not what the English National wanted, uh, which the other director who was up for it wanted to do, or if I would do mythical. And Violin Wagner's designs were the most iconic to me from Bayreuth. And uh, when I went to a friend's house right after I accepted the job with Ed, I was sitting and my friend had an Anish Kapoor on the wall behind her and I said, do you know him? She said, yes, he's my best friend. I thought, fantastic. And I said, I want him to do Tristan and Isolde. And she rung him up and said, would you do Tristan and Isolde? And he said, who's the director? And then we had a meeting. And he, it had been a fundamental formative piece for him in his 20s, from age 20 to 27 in his first studio. So he knew the music intimately. He knew the music better than I did. 
And again, his first question was, what would you do with the ending? And once I gave the correct answer for him, we moved forward. The process was, yeah, well noted. <laughs> the process wasn't um, exactly uh, what I wished it would be, which was he exploded all concepts of stage design that I had known. And again, for better or for worse, when I'm doing my own work as an artist, which I separate very much from my leadership of English National Opera as an artistic director, where I'm responsible for a larger aesthetic and a larger organization, but for my personal work, which will be very limited in this company, because my, my work is more extreme sometimes, um, you don't want my Barber of Seville, trust me. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you <laughs> might. <laughs> Um, Anish thought outside of space and time as I do it. The one thing that was, uh, that was absolute from the beginning is how are these sets going to sing? And that is something that you know, Ed was absolutely uh, heavily involved with and that Anish, that was the only hard thing for him is that they, they have to be sound shelves that bounce the voice out, especially for a Wagner opera in this house. So there were some prescriptions on that, but immediately we just leapt into a world of the abstract essence of things. And again, you want to, I mean, a niche, will, like that is a sphere. That is the only term we are allowed to use to refer to that to, unless you want Anish's eyes to pop and steam and come out of his head. The critics want to call it a garden. The critics want to call it a cave, a geode, the magic garden of their love, Eden, fine. All those things might be in there. Those things are all assigned afterwards. We just kept looking at abstract forms going, that is what love feels like to Anish Kapoor and I on the inside. You know? and, and when that thing goes all red, it's like your innards. And then one review was like, oh, act three, the bleeding heart. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Not at all what we saw there. We wanted a giant piece of void hanging over Tristan, the entire show haunting him. I think the fundamental word in this opera by Roger Scruton's unbelievable book, Death Devoted Heart, is the death wish. And uh, so it was a lot of um, sculptures from both of us and he would get out a piece of clay and smack it together and he'd go on the floor and pick up a piece of trash and shove it in and go, what do you think of that? And it was always responding to clay, whereas with most designers, I sit and talk for six months and then I come in and they've built like a little white card house with a prop teacup that's perfect, which is fantastic in another process, but Anish was visceral, hands-on, and it tied in much better for me with my kind of farm boy pitching manure history. Daniel, thank you very much. Stay with us, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our second guest is Edward Gardner, former music director of English Opera, who conducts today's performance of Tristan's Honor. Will you please welcome Edward Gardner. Hello. Nice to see you. Ed, can you remember the very first time that you heard Tristan? I'll be honest, no, not at all, actually. I, but it's something which is in, I mean, it's in the consciousness of so many classical musicians, isn't it? I mean, the iconic parts of the piece, the the prelude, of course, the end of Act One, I, I remember hearing as a, I mean, I knew that as a child, but it was a long time before I saw the whole opera. And actually, my relationship with Wagner was, was is kind of, it, it's sort of strange because I wasn't into his music so much when I was growing up, when I was, when I was you know, in education. And I had that classic kind of uh, um, 
academicized music education through, you know, I did, I read it at university and I always felt that the way people talked about Wagner was, was, I mean, I was put off by the way it was over academicized, put it like that. And it was only once I started to see great productions or great performances that I fell in love with it for, for it being great music drama and you didn't have to have read a million books to get it. How, how do you prepare yourself for a performance of Tristan? Well, this morning I was uh, watching my son play under six football. So I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that'll get me in the right place. But uh, I, in all seriousness, I have to be. I have to. Um, I don't like to be psychologically ready too early because that's. I get nervous on a day of a show if I'm if I'm like that. So I get the whole kind of thing about getting getting into a suit. I leave as late as possible. Um, but the one thing you, I have to do is keep my energy incredibly low before it because it's. I mean, it's so. It's tiring on one level physically because you're standing, conducting for five hours, but emotionally and, and psychologically, it's absolutely exhausting. And you need to have, your reserves need to be pretty well, well up, both in terms of, you know, eating pasta a couple of hours before to, to you know, how you slept the night before to, to, to really engage with it till the end of the piece. Um, a conductor once said that, that, that the whole of Tristan grows from the prelude, and that's the real challenge for the conductor, to maintain a version of the prelude that will sustain the whole of the rest of the evening. Is that true? No, I don't think so. But, but, I, but my experience of it is very different. The prelude takes you, the prelude gives you an opera in itself. I mean, that's, that's how I feel about it. And at the end of it, I'm, I'm, re I'm absolutely sunk. I, I really, I couldn't conduct, uh, I couldn't, I, can't, I don't feel like I could conduct immediately afterwards with any great purpose. And that's the magic of Wagner, because he gives you the, the offstage sailor. And actually, I have a minute in which just to reset myself. And, and, and the, piece, the piece then starts, for me, at a point much further before the prelude, that incredibly advanced musical um, uh, painting of the prelude. It, the piece then goes back to something much more high romantic. There's more Weber, I always think, in, in, act, in act one. Um, and then I feel like you're on a journey through, strangely. I think, you know, it's through these different um, shapes and shades of the three acts. But the prelude, I, I feel... So the preludes of act one and, and act three feel like dramatic entities unto themselves. Is there something that you've discovered as you've worked on this score that is particularly distinctive about the way in which Wagner composes it and indeed the way he lays it out in the pit, the instrumentation. Is there something that has taken you by surprise as you've worked on this? Well, so much. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, one lovely detail he has was, is that he uses... Um, three groups of wind instruments. It would be interesting to see how, how you engage with this as, as an audience during a performance, but there are three groups of wind instruments who are always interacting with each other. The, the horns, the bassoons, and the trombones, interestingly enough. So you have, in our pit layout, that's, that's the, the bassoons in the middle, the horns over there, the trombones over there. And he uses them as sort of equal instrument groups, colouring the music unbelievably from within. And actually, standing in front of that, the subtlety of that is really, really remarkable. Is there a sense in which the drama in this piece is as much in the pit with you as it is on stage with the, the singers, that the orchestra is really carrying the weight of the drama? I think, I think it is, actually. I think it's, 
And um, people often talk about this with Peleus and Melisande, don't they? That, that that's the piece where where so much is unsaid, but it is said in the orchestra. I mean, we that's where we get the affirmation of what of what everyone's feeling and and the depth of their emotion. I think I mean that that piece comes very clearly from the world of Tristan, and in that sense, you conduct it in a slightly different way. I think I think you're you're accompanying less, um, and you're you're creating the momentum as you feel it of of what the piece and the drama is. And presumably a, an even greater challenge than usual about the balance mm. between the pit and the singers on stage to make certain that we really do hear what's going on. Yeah, Daniel, um, Daniel, I mean, put it very well. It's a, I mean, it's a monster at certain points for Tristan Lizolda. And, and it's, you, you know what? There are places where you don't even know whether Wagner wants the singers to be completely heard. I mean, that that's very clear, but you've... That's, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't plan a whole evening with, with the singers occasionally being heard, can you? I mean, it's, it is, it is literally, I mean, we talk about the end of the Liebestod as a place where, you know, it's okay that the, the, the middle of the odd note of the soprano gets submerged in this incredible orchestral texture, or perhaps, you know, Tristan's big aria in the middle of, in the middle of act three, perhaps the odd note, the orchestra can surge over the voice, but um, you need to hear the text and you need to hear the wondrous singing. And uh, Daniel and Anish, as he, as he touched upon, talked a lot about that and how we make the singers audible, whether it's, you know, in act one. Have you, did you see the designs of, of the acts? You saw, yeah, the pyramid of act one, the side, singing against the side walls is very good, for instance, for the voices coming out. So Daniel Helt works very much on that. And um, actually interesting, the, uh, the, uh, the sphere in act two, uh, we, uh, we tried it out on stage and we ended up putting two extra layers of laminates effectively on the surface because we found with every layer, the voices just pinged out to, to you guys a little bit better. So yeah, we worked very hard on it. How, how in fact did you work with Daniel? I mean, were you involved from the very beginning, the two of you? Yeah, we talked about it for years actually. I mean, two years? Incredible to think of it that long, but we've, we've known each other now for, for 10, actually, since we did Punch and Judy at the Young Vic. So, you know, we have a very close, close relationship and we, we've talked all along the way. Presumably the, the other great challenge is simply finding singers who can sing these roles. I and mean, this is not, you know, you can't simply go down to the, as it were, the singing labour exchange and book a couple of people, can you? No, it's, um, I mean, when, luckily we planned this far enough in advance that we really could find, find the singers. And we're so proud of this cast that we've got here. Um, uh, Nina Stemmer, who you've probably heard sing this role, a lot of you, in, in other places. She sung it in Glyndebourne and Covent Garden and all around the world. She said, said something lovely to Stuart Skelton, our Tristan. Um, uh, they're about to do it together in New York, but she just said it in a conversation over a beer. She said, once you've come to terms with the fact that you have no idea whether you're going to get to the end of the piece or not, you have actually have quite a good evening. <laughs> which, which, you know, this is one of the world's great singers. And for, for both Tristan and Lizolda, that being able to sing through this incredible span of music is, it's, it's superhuman, actually. Um, and Stuart talked about doing it for the first time to me when he did it in, uh, in Baden-Baden with the Berlin Philharmonic. And I went to hear it in, uh, in Berlin, actually, it was beautiful. But he said that you can't, you can't pace yourself in it. I mean, if, as soon as you start, you know, using 10% less emotionally or, or, or vocally, it, you just can't do it anyway. I mean, it just goes into the wrong place in your being and in your, in your voice and in your soul. So you just have to do it and go through it. And I mean, you're here two people who are able to do that tonight. 
Ed, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, our last guests are Janice Watson and Richard Pearson. Janice is covering the role of Isolde, and Richard Pearson is a member of English National Opera's music staff. Would you welcome our next guests, Janice Watson and Richard Pearson. Janice, as, as you may know, and certainly some of the audience will know, you, I'm afraid, have to talk for your supper before you're allowed to sing for it. Um, I just wanted to ask you a bit about Isolde. Um, this is, as Ed has just said, an extraordinary challenge. How on earth do you prepare yourself for this? <laughs> you're very, it's very right. I mean, I, uh, you can't really prepare for it. You just keep working and working and working on it vocally until it's in your soul. And it takes probably years. Um, I have to say this is my first dabble uh, into Isolde, and uh, it really is, as you say, yeah, as you said a minute ago. You just the minute you're in it, you can't you can't hold back. You can't do anything. You're you're on this roller coaster, that uh, only at the end can you get off. You just pray that you get to the end. Um, <laughs> emotionally, physically, and vocally, it's extremely hard and uh, a big lesson for me. I have to say, as somebody who's only just starting. And, and does it rely, therefore, in a kind of unique way, on, on a singer's muscle memory rather than uh, other roles? Yes, well, every role, every role needs good muscle memory. Um, but something happens in this. It's almost like the, the emotional qualities within the music and everything you have to hold tends to tends to make you work harder. He's very clever, Wagner, in this, because he tends to do these wonderfully beautiful phrases and then he'll just take it a little bit further up at the end when you're really running out of breath, you know. The physical side of it, you have to work and work and work until you know absolutely muscularly. Um, and uh, the Liebestort, again, it, it, it's an unbelievable piece to sing and I, I love it, I absolutely love it, but it terrifies me at the same time. What terrifies you about it? <laughs> the things you've already said that, um, well, we did, a, we did a cover run, because I'm covering this role, obviously. We did a cover run the other day. And uh, mentally I was prepared, physically I was prepared. I ate plenty and, and we started and everything was good. And we were dealing with costumes and many physical things within it. But by the end, it felt like, um, it just felt like I was going to explode because I was singing as hard as I could, as beautifully as I could. And at the end, it felt like it's over. And then the next day, I felt like I'd been run over, run over by a train. I could hardly move. I've never been so tired in my life physically. And you have other roles like that. I mean, I've sung Salome a few times, and I would say that's half as difficult. And yet that is branded also as being a very, very difficult role. But this is just a step in a completely different direction. As, as you've worked on Tristan Isolde, um, what have you come to think about Isolde? It's strange. In the, in the actual role, um, you don't get to know a lot about her, really. Um, the first act, uh, she's extremely duty-bound. And when you're talking about narcissism, it's quite interesting. This whole, this is who I am and everyone else has to deal with it. Um, I am a princess and he has the nerve to come in and tell me that I'm going to go with him and be, you know, married to his king. His, you know, and the whole thing is very, it's very built on being a princess, being a role that it, everything's expected of her. And that, that dramatically is, is quite interesting because you never really get to know her vulnerability at all until 
there's a few lines she says in the first act, and you must listen for them. She says, he looked into my eyes. She's talking about Tristan. He Basically, she obviously healed him when he'd been wounded, killing her betrothed. And so she's angry about that. But something happens when she's healing him to make her feel such... I think she feels extreme love for him then. And so that, you know, you get to know there is a very vulnerable side in her, but it's loaded down by extreme duty and honour. When, when she takes the potion, um, suddenly she's... Whether the potion actually does anything at all, it could be like a placebo, but she's suddenly revealed and everything is let loose. And I think that's one of the major things in it, and that's what's so interesting about the character. That also begs the question, I think, about it, doesn't it? Mm. Is, does she, in a sense, want to die, or does she actually, in a sense, want for what happens to happen? What do you think? I think, I think she... All the way through, especially in this production, um, we play with the idea of, of um, self, self-harming and death, and, but that, that is very much individual to this production, I think. Um, it's a fantastic idea because it gives you so much more to play with. I think... Mm, I'm one of these people who loves happy endings, so I find it very sad they both die, I have to say. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I think probably... Once they enter the, uh, the sphere, I think they end up knowing that where they're going. And I would argue that she doesn't want to die in any way, shape, or form, actually. She wants him to turn to her. She wants him to turn and say, I love you and I will always love you. Let's get a love now. Mm. But he doesn't, so she uses all of these threats and things. And the scary thing is that she will become serious about death. Yeah. Mm. That's the darkness in her. Mm. Janice, you're going to sing for us. Mm. Just tell us what you're going to sing. Um, I'd like to sing the Liebestod for you. Um, which is um, after, well, Tristan in this production, he's died. Maybe, maybe she's died as well. Um, and it's the, if you like, a transfiguration. Um, and um, she um, is older in this, in this, well, in all productions, she sees him, whether he's really there or not, but she sees him and she believes he's there. So. <clears throat>
Janice Watson, Richard Pearson, thank you both very much indeed. Um, thank you all for being here this afternoon, and thank you to our two other guests, Edward Gardner and Daniel Kramer. Um, house notices, the bar at the circle dress, dress circle is open if you would like refreshment, and most of you are sitting on a little sheet of paper which will give you details of next season's pre-performance talks. Do have a look. We welcome you to come. Thank you all very much indeed, and our guests.